Well, amen, amen. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Joshua this morning where, Lord willing, I will be preaching through the verses uh, 1 through 15. And, and as you turn there, I know, I know we just sang an incredible song. Um, one of my favorites, in fact. One of my favorite songs that we sing. Uh, but, but I want to draw your attention for a moment to, to a different song. And, and it, may, it may be more famous than the song we just sang. Um, I'm quite certain that most of you know it in here. Um, it was written by uh, J. Fred Coots and Henry Gillespie. We got any Henry Gillespie fans in here? Well, the, the song that they, they wrote, it's, it's very rich, very rich, very famous. Um, and and it's, it's so prominent that it has been covered by uh, Bruce Springsteen and Michael Buble. And, and it even crossed genres to, to the Jackson 5 and Barry Manilow. Like, you know what song I'm talking about? It's, it's Santa Claus is Coming to Town very rich. And I know we're past Christmas, but I figured, you know, just humor me for a moment. Um, the, the song was written for the explicit purpose of causing the listener to change. I mean, think about it. You better not, come on, this is participation. You better not pout. You better not, you better not, I'm telling you why. There's, in, there's imperatives here. Rooted in what? Why? Because Santa Claus is coming to town. Change. Because Santa Claus is coming to town. And in fact, if, if, you, if you listen, it gives you a few more reasons. He's making a list, and he's thorough. He's checking it. Why? Because he's going to find out who's... Watch out, kids, because Santa Claus is coming to town. And it gets worse. In fact, it gets creepier. Because like, if the guilt isn't already thrown up on you, here it is. Kids, he sees you when you're sleeping. And he knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. Imperative, so... And then, if that didn't do it again, repeat it again. All right, so you get what I'm saying? So this song, it, it's, 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 it's a song meant to make little children change. Make little children change through certain indicatives that are meant to drive certain imperatives. And, and if such a silly and fanciful song and concept all together can drive millions of children around the world to briefly, externally change their little decisions in the way they live. I want to ask us this morning, how much more should eternal truths about our God, talking about timeless, eternal truths, how much more should they change the people of God? See this, Christian, when... When God's people come face to face with the Lord God, they are changed. They are. They desire to follow him. 
They desire to be like him. They desire to display the Lord God's glory throughout this earth. We sang about this morning. You will reign forever and therefore our desire is let your glory fill the earth. You see, when we read truths about God and his word, we come away changed. We are not the same. And so as we read about the faithfulness of God this morning, my prayer is that it would change us. My my prayer is that it would change our hearts in the midst of whatever you're going through right now, that it would change you. In fact, my main point is this this morning. The faithfulness of God should drive us to be faithful Christians. Very simple. The faithfulness of God should drive us to be faithful Christians. Hopefully you've made your way to the book of Joshua and Joshua chapter 10. I will be preaching, Lord willing, through verses 1 through 15 this morning. Please follow along as I, as I read. As soon as Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hohem, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lashish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lashish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, and he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. 
May God bless the reading of his word this morning. My main point is this, the faithfulness of God should drive us to be faithful Christians. Point one this morning, sub point one. Because God is faithful to his word, we should be faithful to ours. Because God is faithful to his word, we should be faithful to ours. As we come to, to verse 1 this morning, we, you might notice that we encounter a king named Adonizedek. And he was, it said, the text tells us that, that he was the king of Jerusalem. And like the rest of Israel's enemies mentioned in the book of Joshua thus far, as at, uh, Adonizedek, he had heard of God's past faithful work for the Israelites in driving out their enemies in the promised land so far. He heard of Israel's victory against Jericho. He, he heard of Israel's victory against Ai. Neither city, neither Jericho nor Ai, could, could stand at all before the Lord God and the people of Israel. Both cities were completely devoted to destruction. Not a single person survived from either city other than Ruth and her household because she truly feared the Lord and sought mercy, and as the text tells us, she and her family lived in Israel and among the people of Israel to that day. But one of Adonizedek's main concerns that brought him the most fear, however, that, that sheds a little bit of light on this in the text, um, was, was not primarily just Jericho and Ai's defeat, but it was primarily that one of Jerusalem's biggest allies, Gibeon, had entered into a covenant with Israel. Now, we learned about this covenant last week in Joshua chapter 9. If, if you didn't hear the sermon, you can go to our website and you can hear that sermon, and it might make this sermon make a little more sense. I will not recount the whole sermon, but if you were here, you'll remember that because Gibeon feared that Israel would most certainly devote Gibeon to destruction, the Gibeonites were crafty, and they tricked Israel into entering into a covenant relationship with them. You see, this was a problem for Israel because God explicitly told the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy not to enter into any covenants with people who lived in the promised land that was promised to the Israelites. Instead, they could only enter into peace treaties with far-off nations that were living in the land. You might also recall that because Gibeon tricked Joshua and the nation of Israel, Joshua ended the chapter of chapter 9 by cursing the Gibeonites. However, in their cursed position, we have to acknowledge that the Gibeonites' earthly lives were spared. They experienced some common grace from Yahweh. Now, now you might think that Gibeon's fear of Israel was because they were some insignificant, powerless, weak city, sort of like Ai. But the reality is nothing could be further from the truth. Verse 2, if you look, it tells us that, that Gibeon, it, it was a great city, like one of, one of the royal cities. It was a city of, of notoriety. In fact, Dr. Dale Davis notes this, it was a strategic city that guarded the eastern end of the way of Beth Haran, which was an important road between Jerusalem and Ajalon to the west. Not only that, but the text also tells us 
that all of its men were mighty warriors. This, this means that, that Gibeon, it, it had a, a large and impressive army. Needless to say, Gibeon, it was not just some weak city. It was a very strong and prominent and powerful city. And see, in, in the ancient Near East, such cities would often ally together with other cities around it for the purposes of, of defense or for, for the purposes of, of trade, etc. And it appeared that Gibeon was in alliance with its surrounding neighbors and was likely the most impressive city within that coalition of nations. So, if Gibeon allied itself with Israel, that means that they were now enemies of their former allies who were all devoted to destruction. By doing this, Israel had effectively divided up the land and the coalitions from a geographical standpoint. Between their conquering of Jericho and Ai and their treaty with Gibeon, they put a wedge between the north and the south. It was actually quite the, the military strategy if you look at it from a geographical standpoint. And obviously, this would have been a major threat to Adonizedek. Therefore, in, in verses 3 through 5 of, of chapter 10, we see that he bands together with four of the other kings in the region to strike the Gibeonites because they made peace with Israel. They gathered their armies together, and it says that they made war on the Gibeonites. And I find it interesting that when they hear about you know, Jericho, when they hear about Ai, you know, when these five kings, when they hear about Yahweh's destruction of, of previous nations, when, when they hear about his power, when they hear about his might, when they hear that, that God accomplishes all that he pleases, none of these nations try to seek peace. None of them. Not, none of these nations even try to be cunning and trick the, the Gibeonites or trick the Israelites like the Gibeonites did. None of them. They simply try the same tactics of the previous nations and they wage war against God's people. In fact, it, it speaks to just insanity. Isn't that the definition we always hear? Trying the same thing, hoping for different results. It truly speaks to the depravity of these nations. In fact, I want you to hear, me, hear this, that the depravity of the nations is a major theme over the next few chapters of Joshua. I will continue to reiterate this over the, over the next few sermons in Joshua. But it's imperative that we understand how much the people of the land hated the Lord God and his people. It's imperative. I believe that there was something particularly vile about these pagan nations that lived in the promised land at the time of Joshua. If you've studied the book of, of Genesis, you might recall God's covenant with Abram in Genesis 15. In that covenant, he promised to give Abram the promised land. He clearly laid out geographical boundaries. You can study that in your quiet time this week. He promised that his offspring would outnumber the stars. Yet he also told Abram that his people, that his offspring, would be slaves in a land that was not theirs for 400 years. Of 
course, this referred to their slavery and where? In Egypt. We read about this in, in the book of Exodus. He also told Abram that he would not see his offspring take possession of the land. Instead, Genesis 15, 16, you can write that down. It says this because it's important, again, for the next few weeks or next few sermons. Genesis 15 says that the Israelites would not enter the promised land until the iniquity of the Amorites was complete. Until the iniquity of the Amorites was complete. What I find very interesting is that this promise in Genesis 15 comes right after an interesting encounter in Genesis 14. In Genesis 14, Abram had gone to battle against some of the pagan kings in the land, and, and I'm making this very simplistic, but to, to rescue his nephew Lot, who had been taken captive. After Abram successfully defeated these pagan kings and received his nephew back, Abram encounters a priest king named Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem, which was ancient Jerusalem. You see, God, Genesis 14 describes Melchizedek as a priest of God Most High. We also see Melchizedek there in Jerusalem blessing Abram, God's chosen seed. And so we fast forward all the way to our time in Joshua chapter 10. And, and we don't find Melchizedek, but another king named Adonai Zedek ruling in Jerusalem. Unlike Melchizedek, Adonai Zedek would, would not wish to bless Israel, but to go to war with Israel as they pursued war with Israel's newfound ally. In fact, there were no nations in the promised land that desired to bless Israel. Not one. Why? Because there were no nations that desired to truly turn to Yahweh. The land was completely corrupt. Its people were completely corrupt. They saw Yahweh's power and they didn't desire to turn. They desired to wage war against him. They were a people who were guilty and who hated the Lord God. The iniquity of the Amorites was complete and God's judgment was coming upon them because of their sin. We must understand that over the next few chapters of Joshua. Friends, this is the backdrop, the next few chapters, it is the backdrop of our text today. And so as we continue in Joshua 10, verse 6, we find this. We find that the Gibeonites were at war with these pagan kings. And even though Gibeon was a mighty nation, this war was five nations against one nation. What does Gibeon do? Gibeon sought the help of the ally that they just deceived, Joshua and the nation of Israel. Specifically what they said in the text, they said, hey, hey, do not relax your hand from your servants. Don't leave us out here to die, Israel. I Israel, don't desert us. Israel, honor the covenant you just made with us. Don't let us die. And perhaps the most interesting part of this whole passage is found in, in verse 7. Joshua and his men, they actually go to war to help them. They go to war. Not just that, but it says, 
all the men of war went with him. They all went to battle. They all went to go defend the Gibeonites. They completely came to their aid. The nation in its fullness desired to go and to defend the Gibeonites. And what makes this passage of Scripture so interesting is the context under which the Israelites protect the Gibeonites. You see, as I mentioned earlier, the book of Deuteronomy demanded that the Israelites devote the nations living in the land to complete destruction. Yet, because the Israelites did not seek the Lord's counsel, they relied on their own wisdom, they were deceived into believing that the Gibeonites were a far-off nation, a nation that the law permitted that they could seek peace with. And so this resulted in the Israelites cutting a covenant to not harm the Gibeonites, or to not put them to death. And so the Gibeonites would now live in the land that, would, that was reserved for Israel alone. In such a case where you'd been tricked into an agreement, my question is this, how would you respond? How would you respond? See, it seems to me that the easiest thing might have been to simply let these pagan kings kill off the Gibeonites. Seems to me. You see, in chapter 9, they simply agreed not to harm the Gibeonites. Go back and look at it. Go back and read it. To not devote them to destruction. To not kill them. You see, from a letter of the law standpoint, it seems to me that Israel might have been justified in not coming to their aid. After all, it wasn't the Israelites killing them. It was who? Pagan nations. I mean, after all, the Gibeonites didn't have the Israelites' best interest at heart, did they? They weren't concerned about the holiness of Yahweh's people. They were only concerned for themselves and for their well-being. You see, the Israelites in that moment, as they, as they, as they contemplated what, the, what to do, they could have simply relaxed their hand, and this whole issue of the Gibeonites could have been in the rearview mirror. However, that is not how Joshua responded. Instead, Joshua honored the covenant to the fullest extent. He honored the heart of the covenant relationship. Even if the terms of the covenant were made deceitfully, Joshua honored his word anyway. Even when the terms of the covenant involved Joshua going to war for a group of people who sinfully deceived him just a few days earlier, Joshua honored his word. See, in our day and age, it is rare that we find people so committed to their word. You see, people make promises, oaths, covenants, or agreements all the time that are not nearly as committed as the language of the contract is. People all the time, we sign things, we do things, having no intent really of honoring our word. You see, we are programmed to go to a website, aren't we? We hop on the web, or we hop on our phones, and, and we click OK to always, all the privacy settings, all the cookies. We just, OK, OK. We're, we're programmed to this. 
We, we give away our privacy. We, we open a new iPhone and we always click that we agree to the terms and conditions. And truthfully, we never read them. Just in haste, we make an agreement. We make a covenant. We just click OK and we keep scrolling. Doesn't stop there though. See, our whole legal system is made for truths, contracts, and laws to be gray or to be open for interpretation. With the right lawyers, you can get out of, of many legal problems simply by twisting the law with the right judge. E even in our Supreme Court, there, there are a variety of opinions regarding how the law is to be understood. Some take the letter of the law, some take the intent of the law, some reject both, and they simply interpret the law whatever way that they see fit. See, this is a symptom of a society that doesn't say what it means and means what it says. We are programmed to break our word. Consider the number of, of people who say, for better or for worse, till death do us part on their wedding day, but ultimately break the marriage covenant. Even many who don't break the marriage covenant altogether still treat the vows made as optional in their relationship. Consider those that enter into a financial commitment to make payments for a home, car, or rack up so much credit card debt that they know that they can't afford and they won't end up paying at all and they'll just default. Consider politicians who talk a big game on the campaign trail only to be carbon copies of those that they seek to replace in office. Consider employees who accept a wage from their employer for a job they promise to perform, but they don't give their all, they take shortcuts, or they succumb to laziness. Consider employers who make promises to their employees but never follow through on them. Consider Christians who join the church and sign the church covenant that makes a promise to give, to serve, to exercise your spiritual gift, to submit to church leadership, to attend, to live in peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ, etc. Yet even such sacred agreements are signed willy-nilly and never thought about again. We might even consider the one that we're the most guilty of. All of us. The promise to pray. You know what I'm talking about. How often do we, uh, we, we just utter those words to a brother or sister who's hurting? Oh, I I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. Someone in the most desperate and dire circumstances that we meet and say, I'll pray for you, but we don't pray. And we have no intent of praying. How often can we as parents make promises to our children and find ourselves unable to keep them? You see, even as I describe our condition, even if you know what I'm saying is correct, it likely doesn't convict us that much. Likely. I'm guessing right now you're like, yeah, that's probably true of our society, but I don't really care. We don't see keeping our word as that big of a deal. You see, we might distinguish between really big commitments like marriage or promising to pay a mortgage as really important promises to keep. Yet all of the little flippant promises or agreements we make aren't really that important. Yet the Bible doesn't see things the way that we do. It doesn't. In fact, we can see from our passage last week that Joshua didn't see things that way. In Joshua 9, 
rather than attempting to get out of the covenant he made with the Gibeonites, arguing that it was made under deception, he honored his commitment. Why? Because in Joshua 9, verse 20, Joshua acknowledged that a failure to keep the covenant with the Gibeonites would result in the wrath of God coming upon the Israelites. We must understand that honesty and keeping our word, Christians, is very, very important to God. And there are many passages in the Bible that speak against breaking our promises, but more importantly, against making hasty promises. Consider Psalm 15 with me. In Psalm 15, verse 1, we read, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? In other words, who will have real fellowship with the Lord? In other words, who are really God's people? Answer, verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Well, that means that even when he makes a promise that hurts him from an earthly standpoint, to his detriment, he still honors it. I think this applies certainly to the nation of Israel, but certainly to us. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. We might also consider Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in in Matthew 5.33 where he says, Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But but I say to you, understand Jesus wasn't reinterpreting the law here, but interpreting it properly. Jesus says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, For it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Joshua, I'm sorry, James 3, 5 through 8 speaks of the tongue. And it says this, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now we might read a passage of scripture like that, and we might just think, well, it's referring to the, just slander, and, and, and it's referring to just cussing or saying vile things. And that certainly does apply. But I would consider 
the, the reality of what happens when we speak carelessly and we make false promises that we never intend to keep. It sets a fire ablaze for ourselves and for others. Don't believe me? Parents, look at me. Children, look at me. Have you ever made a promise to your young child that after we do X, if you are good, we will get X? And you've failed to keep that promise. Have you noticed that your kids are typically very understanding? No! It sets a fire ablaze in your car on the way home because children expect their parents to keep their promises. This isn't just a problem with with, with uh Parents and children, it's a problem with bosses and, 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 and their employees and, and, and those in authority and those under authority. See, we would be wise to agree with the writer of Ecclesiastes in the fifth chapter of Ecclesiastes 5, 2 through 7, when he says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Joshua and the Gibeonites. Why should God be angry at your voice? and destroy the work of your hands. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. See, friends, God takes vows, promises, covenants, the words that we say very, very, very seriously. Our problem is we talk too much. We just talk. We're foolish. I envy you quieter people as one who talks a lot. To be quite honest, for those of us who talk a lot like me, these truths should strike a bit of fear in our hearts. Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 36, that on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. In other words, those who have been saved by grace have truly been changed by grace to care about the things that God cares about. And understand this, Christian, that God deeply cares about truth. He does. God deeply cares about his people keeping their word. In fact, you you can study the Bible, and, and there are over 40 passages of Scripture that command us, the people of God, to keep our word. Why? That's the question. Why does God care so much about his people keeping their vows? And the answer is found in Leviticus 19. In Leviticus 19, too, we read this very famous verse that I know that you're all familiar with. The Lord tells Moses to tell the congregation of Israel, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, God, am holy. You see, this was God's will and calling a people to himself and giving them his holy law. His will for his people was for the nation of Israel 
to be a light to the nations by obeying God's word. If you read, if you, if you read Levi's devotional this morning, you would have read that. Why? Because the law gives the world insight into the character, goodness, justice, mercy, and holiness of Yahweh, the one true God. As the Israelites would obey the word of God, the nations would look at Israel and say, what sort of amazing God is this who gives such righteous and good decrees for his people? He must be an amazing God. This is exactly what we see in Deuteronomy. The explicit reason the Lord gives the law. Then Leviticus 19.12, the reason why breaking our word is so damning for God's people, is this. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You see, when God's people, hear me Christian, when God's people deal falsely in this world, we profane the name of the Lord to those that do not know the Lord. We defile the name of the Lord. Said a bit differently, we give the world a false impression of who God is. You must understand this. That God is a covenant keeper. That God is a promise keeper. Psalm 15, 1-3 says this, friends, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, God is faithful to his word to the furthest and fullest extent all day, every day, and he never, ever, ever changes, ever. And that's, you know what the great part about that is? Is that, God isn't just faithful in a tyrannical sense. He isn't faithful in a vile or evil sense. He isn't faithful to, to, to lead us into destruction. In the Psalm 15, or 115, verse 1, He is faithful to demonstrate steadfast love to His people at all times. Isn't that amazing? And then, and then Psalm 115.2 says, Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. It's, it's not that God is faithful, that all the things just fall in line for God to be able to do what He wants. No, because of who God is, He can accomplish all of his holy will. And his holy will is to pour steadfast love upon his people. You see, friends, the covenant-keeping, faithful, steadfast God that we serve should lead us to be people who are covenant-keeping people. As we are Christ's ambassadors, Christians, we must take his reputation seriously. Do you take 
the reputation of God and your ambassadorship in the kingdom of God seriously, then you will be a faithful covenant-keeping person. We must understand that the way we act in this world, the decisions we make, the things that we say, all tell this world something about God. You profess to be a Christian. That is true of you. And I believe that this is why Joshua went to war. He honored the full heart of his covenant to the Gibeonites. Was it sinful to get into a covenant relationship with the Gibeonites in the first place? Yes. It was foolish. Absolutely. They should have sought the Lord's wisdom. However, would it have been sinful to break the covenant that they just made with the Gibeonites? According to Scripture, absolutely. You see, friends, we never repent of sin by committing more sin. That's not how we repent. So as Joshua and his army seek to defend the Gibeonites, what motivates them to faithfulness? What motivates them to keep their word? What spurs them on to righteousness? Friends, it is the Lord God and his covenant faithfulness. Point two, quickly. Because God is faithful to his word, because God is faithful to his word, we should be faithful in prayer. We should be faithful in prayer. Look at Joshua 10.8. As Joshua and the Israelites seek to do the right thing, the Lord tells Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. You know, what I, what I find most interesting here is, is that God just reiterates the same promise to Joshua over and over and over and over and over. In the midst of his trial, in the midst of where he may not know what to do, Joshua, or God doesn't just give Joshua just new insight, new information. He keeps reminding him of one thing. He keeps reminding Joshua of his faithfulness of his holy character, of his steadfast love, of his protection, the fact that God would never, would never leave him. And some of us need to hear that this morning. Some of us do. And our struggle with sin, anxiety, or the problems of life, our lives can feel like a whirlwind. It can be so tempting to take our eyes off of Jesus Christ and to turn them to ourselves or turn them to our circumstances. You see, God didn't invite Joshua to take stock of his own personal accolades or his own abilities. He didn't, he didn't tell Joshua that, that, you know, I made you just so special for just a time as this, Joshua. Instead, Yahweh turned his eyes to the only thing that can truly give us courage in a world full of sin and doubt, and that is the Lord God and his faithful covenant keeping character. Only when we keep our eyes on the Lord can we walk in a way that truly brings honor to the Lord. You see, God was not promising that Joshua would win the war. God was promising that he would win the war. See, as Joshua considered the promises of God, what did it cause him to do? What does the text say? as he meditated on the promises of God, as, as he considered the promises of God, it caused him to faithfully march. He went to war. He worked hard. He marched all night. He was steadfast and immovable. 
You see, the fact that God was going to win the war caused Joshua to fight and to wage war, not just to sit on his hands, as Pat said a few weeks ago, to let go and to let God. As Joshua knew that victory wasn't just possible, but imminent, it caused Joshua to walk in faithful obedience to the Lord. Then what happened? Well, as he promised, the Lord went to war on behalf of his people. Verse 10 says that the Lord threw them into a panic. He took the armies of five different nations at once and he confounded them. They were confused. He rendered them and their strategies ineffective. As these nations were in a panic, the Israelites at that moment attacked them with the sword. And then, I love this, as the nations started to retreat, what happened? They started retreating in every direction. And the Lord God is like, "Uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh. Uh-uh. The Lord started playing lawn darts with hailstones. And he defeated the enemies of Israel and his enemies right there in that area. In fact, the the, the text tells us this, that there were more people that the Lord God killed with hailstones than Israel killed with the sword. Can you imagine that sight? Can you imagine seeing God do that? I mean, physically seeing God defeat your enemies. It must have been a sight. You know, what would you do in such a moment? How would you respond? Verse tells us how verse 12 tells us how Joshua responded. He responded in prayer. He responded in prayer. God's sovereign providence in Joshua's life didn't inspire Joshua to greater self-confidence, but a greater confidence in God. It, it didn't remind him of his sufficiency, but of his insufficiency. His proper view of God humbled him. And it stripped him of all pride. And in the midst of the battle, Joshua was well aware that he needed the Lord God, period. So Joshua, in that moment, he prayed a big, bold prayer in accordance with God's will. See, God had already revealed his will for Joshua and the nation of Israel to possess the land and to put the pagan nations to death. Joshua knew what the will of God was because he listened to the word of God. And so Joshua's prayer wasn't trying to twist God's arm to conform to Joshua's will. Joshua was praying in accordance to God's word. And through prayer, Joshua's will was becoming God's will. And he prayed a supernatural prayer. He, prays, he prayed an incredible prayer. He asked for the sun and the moon to cease their normal function until all of their enemies were put to death. Like, what a prayer! Have you ever prayed such an outlandish prayer? But that is insane. And, and this is exactly what happened, friends. God worked in a supernatural way. God worked in a specific way that Joshua asked. The text says that the sun stood still, the moon stopped. 
And there, there, there's, there's somewhat of a, a debate among theologians as to what exactly happened in this point. See, the, the sun standing still, from Hebrew, you, you, you can look it up. It could, be re, it could be rendered that it ceased from its normal function, which would lend itself to the event being an event of total darkness rather than a, an event of, com, of complete and total light for an extended period of time. I, I will let you guys come to your own conclusion about that because that's not the main point of the text. The point of the text is this, that the Lord God did something incredibly supernatural, that it was obvious that it was only the Lord God that could do this, that allowed Israel to defeat their enemies. But don't miss this. Don't miss this, that he worked through the prayers of his people. He worked through the prayers of his people. You see, that, that, that might be the most amazing thing that happened in this whole book, according to verse 14. The whole book of Joshua, and Joshua's whole life, as he considered the way the Lord God worked. We're not going to see a verse like this again. In verse 14, there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heard the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. See, Joshua, an amazing man of God, had already seen Yahweh do some pretty amazing things just so far. And we're going to see the Lord God do some more amazing things. Yet, no, hear me, Christian, knowing that God heard his prayer was arguably the most amazing thing that Joshua encounters in the whole book. Christian, are you, are you that amazed that the God of all creation hears your prayers? That when you speak to our Lord, he hears you. That the king who sits enthroned in heaven, ruling over everything, he hears you when you pray. He is not too busy executing his lordship over all of creation to hear us. He is not unwilling to hear us. He is not unable to hear us. When his children come, he listens. Not only that, but he fights for us. He strengthens us. He provides for us. He gives us courage. He sanctifies us. He conforms us to Christ. He conforms our will to his. He is so gracious. He is so merciful. He is so faithful, and he will accomplish all that he pleases. And so such truths should drive us, Christians, hear me, such truths, if that is true, if God hears us when we pray, and God really does work when we pray, Christians, this truth should drive us to prayer. It should drive us to prayer. And I'm, I'm not talking about little small menial prayers. I'm not talking about your hangnail. I'm not talking about, about your toothache. I'm talking about big, bold prayers in accordance to God's revealed word. You see, prayers that God would supernaturally open the eyes of the blind in our community. Do you know that we need a, a supernatural work of God if we are going to make disciples in this community? Do we know that? It's not just our methods. We need God to move. When we pray for that, that's what we're doing this month. Prayers that the gospel 
would go to the ends of the earth. You know, when Matt goes to Uganda, he needs saints praying for him. And Pat and others. Prayers that the Lord would continue to make us more like Jesus. Prayers for boldness in a world that hates us. Prayers for wisdom in a world of foolishness. Prayers for reconciliation in the most divided relationships. Prayers for repentance where repentance is needed. Prayers for faithfulness as we grow older. Because because guess what? Just because you grow older doesn't mean you grow wiser. Prayers that God would save our whole families, every child, every spouse, every parent. Prayers that the Lord would use our church to make disciples here in Kennesaw and in the nations. Prayers for corporate holiness at Community Bible Church. Prayers that that we would give our lives away and give our monies away to see this community and this world know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Friends, all of these things are supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. All of them. They're amazing. Just as amazing as as the sun standing still is the fact that God still supernaturally saves sinners. And and not even just as far more amazing than the sun standing still is the fact that that God supernaturally saves those dead in their sin. You see, we cannot conjure up the fruit of the Spirit. We cannot conjure up God's work. We cannot fake it. We cannot will it. So ask ourselves this, Christians, will we pray? Will the faithfulness of God drive us to our knees in prayer? Will it? John Calvin called prayer the chief exercise of faith. Paul called the church in Colossae to continue steadfastly in prayer. We look at Joshua and we find a man of prayer. We can also look to the Lord Jesus Christ and what do we find? A man of prayer. Will we look at these giants of the faith and our Lord himself to find praying men yet cease to be a praying church? Friends, God's faithfulness to us should result in hearts that long to faithfully love, worship, and obey the Lord God. As we close, we must understand something very important. Unlike Joshua's relationship to the Gibeonites, God was not deceived into needing to be faithful to us. We in no way hid who we were from God, and we couldn't do it if we tried. Romans 5.8 tells us, that God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were openly wretched and disobedient to the Lord, he chose to faithfully rescue us from our sin. Unlike Joshua, God did not send hailstones from heaven to defeat our enemies. Instead, God sent his son from heaven to defeat our greatest enemy, our sin. He did this fulfilling the promise that he made in Genesis chapter 3. He promised to send one from the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And God was faithful to promise to his promises in sending Jesus Christ to do just that. Jesus promised he would rise from the grave. He was faithful to do just that. Jesus promised he would send the Holy Spirit as our helper. He was faithful to do just that. 
Jesus promised that he would build his church. He has been faithful to do just that. He promised that he would never leave us or forsake us. And he has been faithful to do just that. He promised to go and prepare a place for us that where he is, there we may be also. He promised that he would come again. He promised that he would make all things new. He promised to reign physically among his people forever. He promised to judge the wicked. He promised to send Satan to hell. And we await the day that he will be faithful to those promises. And as we wait, and as we watch, may we faithfully and prayerfully watch because our God is faithful. May such truths change us both now and forever.